Welcome again to our study in the Epistle of Paul to the Philippians. We're glad you're here with us. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 tonight. I know we're breaking into a bit of a context there, but we'll see if we can make everything work. And glad you're here. Let's begin with prayer. Father, again, we are grateful to you, Lord, for all that you give to us. We know, we believe, and we are certain that you cause all things to work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purposes. So, Father, we pray that you would uh, continue to strengthen us and enable us to walk uh, well in this world as we seek to be lights before others of your grace and mercy. We bless you for our Savior, Yeshua, and, Lord, for your giving us your Spirit. Ruach HaKodesh, we bless your presence with us, And we pray that more and more we would be sensitive to your leading and that we would be always ready to submit to your leading. So, Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We bless you, Lord, that you have given it to us, that you have preserved your word and kept it for us in such wonderful ways that we would have it in our own hands, in our own hearts, and in our own language, and that you even preserved those manuscripts in the original languages. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that, indeed, we would recognize its great value in each of our lives. And as we study tonight, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to those things which are applicable primarily to each one of us, perhaps in special ways in terms of our own circumstances. But, Lord, we pray that your word would, indeed, dwell richly among us all, and that we might conform ourselves unto your word, so that we might be the lights in this world of your grace and mercy. Thank you so much, Father, for your love to us, for sending our Savior Yeshua, and Yeshua for the unspeakable gift you have given to us in cleansing us of our sins through your own payment and sacrifice. And we bless you, and may our lives give you glory and honor in every aspect of our doing and being. And we thank you that this word that we study tonight is indeed your word and will help us to walk in the footsteps of the Messiah. We bless you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay, I was going to read from the New International Version, but after reading it uh, through just a few minutes ago, I decided to go back to the New American Standard Bible, primarily because of the uh, difficulties that we would encounter in the verses that we're studying tonight, which are verses 16 and 17 of Philippians 2. And we're not going to make it all the way through verse 17, uh, but uh, we'll get a start on it. And uh, that's how much time we'll have, I think, together tonight. So, let's read together. I will read it here, uh, chapter 2 of Philippians. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Messiah, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Messiah Yeshua, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Yeshua every knee will bow, of those who are in, the, in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Messiah I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Messiah Yeshua. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed... He was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death. For the work of Messiah, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. So I want to go back and just make sure that we have this context in mind, because we're going to be starting with verse 16, but verses 15 and 16, uh, really uh, 14 actually, all the way through 17, uh, form a, a unit, and uh, we're breaking into it, so I want to make sure that we kind of have this in mind. And he's talking about unity within a given body of the believers, a local community, 
that there should be no grumbling and disputing. That is the sense that uh, the grumbling is the idea of, of just kind of quietly, but under your breath, kind of uh, being contrary. But disputing is actually talking to others and saying, do you know what this person said? So it's a bit of a, a Lashon Hara. It's the kind of evil speech that inevitably becomes uh, talking against one another, the gossip. Um, and this is what he's saying, do everything without that so that you will prove yourselves to be, if you remember when we were studying this last week, to, to be who you truly are, children of God. In other words, we already are children of God. And it doesn't appear what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. And you know this verse. So children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Therefore, our, uh, our goal in, be, in becoming more and more like Yeshua is the whole point of becoming who we are. In other words, if we're truly born from above, then our lives will produce the fruit of that genuine faith. And a good part of that is learning how to love one another in truth, which doesn't mean we always agree, but it means when we do disagree, we do so for the good of each other and not to tear anybody down. And then he says, holding fast the word of life, which is where we're going to begin tonight. So, verse 16, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Messiah I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. This opening phrase of verse 16, holding fast the word of life, as I noted, should be connected back to the Hine in order that clause of verse 15. How are we going to become more and more what God intends us to be? Well, he continues on in our verse to say, holding fast the word of life. Uh, verse 15 specifically details the Im immediately pre previous clause appear as lights in the world. In other words, the opening clause of verse 16 further emphasizes a primary means by which the Philippian believers and us would prove themselves to be blameless and innocent and therefore enabled to be above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, and would therefore shine as lights in the world. And of course, you remember that the terminology that uh, Paul uses here is regarding the stars in the sky, that we would shine in the darkness even as the stars do at night. So, thus, one of the primary means by which all who confess Yeshua to be their Savior are enabled to be true and valiant witnesses of his glory and his saving power, is by, as he says at the beginning of our verse, holding fast the word of life. Now, the Greek verb translated holding fast, epexontes, is the present active participle of the verb epeko, which means to maintain a grasp on someone or something, to hold it and not let go of it. That is, to understand that it belongs to you and it's important for you. We all know that the things that are necessary, say for instance you're going on a trip for a few days or for a week or a couple of weeks, maybe you're taking some vacation and you begin to pack the things that you feel you need. 
Well, there are some things that are more important than others. But when you pack and when you take things with you, you want to be sure that the things that are absolutely necessary are carefully guarded and held on to. That's what this uh, picture that Paul gives us entails, holding fast the word of life. And this is a present active participle. Which means what? Well, it may not mean much to those of you that haven't studied the Greek. I understand that. But to maintain a grasp on someone or something. But the fact that Paul uses a present participle here makes it clear that he envisions this to be the ongoing, regular characteristic of the believer's life. Because a participle, a present participle, is something that is always happening. It doesn't stop. And so it becomes the characteristic. If you think of it this way, if you're trying to explain to someone about a person that you saw yesterday at the store, and the person you're talking to doesn't really know that person very well, what do you do? You may pick a very clear uh, property or uh, something of that person that stands out. Well, that's what this is supposed to be. So, you know, you may talk about, oh, you remember the fellow that's so tall or, you know, the, the fellow that uh, looks like he lifts weights all the time. <laughs> you find some kind of uh, specific characteristic that would picture the person you're talking about. Well, what is the characteristic of those who are believers in the Messiah? It is that we hold fast the word of life. Moreover, the fact that Paul uses the present participle, as I say here, makes it clear that he envisions this to be the ongoing, regular characteristic of the believer's life. So, we can ask ourselves this important question. How is it that we hold on to holding fast? In other words, not letting go of the word of life. Well, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, what does Paul mean by the phrase word of life? Because that phrase is used by Paul only here. But we also see this same verbiage used by John in the opening of his first epistle in 1 John. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifest to you. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Yeshua Messiah. So clearly here the phrase, the word of life, is slightly different in the Greek than the phrase in our Philippians text. For in First John, the definite article appears twice, the word of the life. Thus, if we were to translate it word for word, it would be the word of the life, that is, the word who is the very means of eternal life. That John opens his gospel using the word as a description of Yeshua himself, it seems clear that in his first epistle, the phrase, the word of the life, is likewise used to refer specifically to Yeshua himself. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So when it says the word of the life, it means Yeshua who gives life. That is, Yeshua, who is himself the word, that is, the ultimate revelation of God to man, and thus the one who himself is the very revelation of God's redemptive purpose and love 
as well as the very means by which he would redeem those whom he would save. Well, in our current verse, however, the phrase word of life without the definite articles, the words the, seems most likely to refer to the scriptures. Why? Because it is in the scriptures that Yeshua is made known. And it's not only the apostolic scriptures. It's from the very beginning. Uh, and this is very clear because even uh, Moses was given a, a direct revelation and even uh, talked face to face with Yeshua apparently on Mount Sinai for the, the one whom he talked to was God and it, the text tells us that he had feet. So it was God incarnate. It was God taking on a human form. And and as we as we read earlier in in John, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, John says. What is it that he had seen and, pro, and proclaims? The word of life, that is Yeshua. So here's a good uh, connection to the fact that word of life in Paul here means the message that has been given to us regarding Yeshua and describing Yeshua in the scriptures themselves. And that's why I say, in our current verse, the phrase word of life without the definite article seems most likely to refer to the scriptures. For it is the entire written inspired Bible that ultimately points to the word, who is Yeshua, the eternal and final revelation of God to mankind, who alone is therefore the author and perfecter of our faith, as the writer to the Hebrews uh, gives us in chapter 12, verse 2. Now, given this understanding of the opening phrase of our verse, we must ask ourselves what Paul intends us to understand by his admonition, holding fast the word of life. As noted above, the verbiage Paul uses in this phrase seems ultimately to emphasize to hold tightly, to grasp onto something as greatly desired and as or uh, essential. And what is it that Paul teaches us is so essential and so necessary if we are to remain faithful unto the day of Messiah? It is the very inspired scriptures which have been guarded, preserved, and maintained through the earth's history as the sure and unchangeable foundation for our faith in Yeshua. The scriptures are therefore likewise the divinely ordained instructions for a life of faith and for our walking in this world as the children of God, those who have the ultimate goal to live in such a way as so as to give God the glory he so much deserves. Now, I know that I emphasize this quite often, but I do that because the scriptures themselves emphasize this. How can we expect to implement the very uh, mind and heart of God in our lives, to implement the instructions he has given us the Torah, which simply means God's instruction, right? In its broadest sense. How can we live to be like Yeshua unless we know him in a way that is true and in a way that we can uh, understand and implement into our own lives through the work of the Spirit of God? We can't do it on our own. In our flesh, <laughs> we're weak. But in the Spirit, we are strong. So, I don't think we can emphasize enough how important the Scriptures are for us. Well, Tim, you say, what, 
how do we go about this? You know, I go to synagogue every Shabbat, or I, I go to church every Sunday. Well, we need to be in the Word of God every day. And we need to ask the simple questions. What does it say? Do I really understand what it means? And then, can I understand how I can use the truth that I have read today to help me become more and more what God wants me to be, to live in this fallen world as a light of His grace and mercy and of His glory, who He is and what He has called us to be in Him. So, I can't emphasize enough how important it is for those of us who confess Yeshua to be our Messiah to recognize how important the Scriptures are for our daily living to be His witnesses. Some commentators on our verse engage in discussion as to whether the phrase means to hold forth the word of life, that is, to evangelize the lost, or to hold on to the word of life, meaning to immerse oneself in the scriptures and thus striving to conform one's life to its inspired teaching and precepts. Note, for instance, that the King James Version translates this opening phrase of our verse as holding forth the word of life, holding forth, by which obviously it means to give the word of life to others, to broadcast the word of life. Well, in my understanding, there is no need to decide for one interpretation to the exclusion of the other. For the believers who constantly seek to know and apply the scriptures in all areas of life and who therefore grow spiritually will likewise be eager in giving the gospel of Yeshua to others in obedience to what God has revealed. You understand what I'm saying? If the word of God dwells so clearly within us, if we have it in our minds, in our hearts, if we seek to know it and to implement it and to learn it more and more, then most certainly we would be impelled to be a witness for the Lord. Because is this not what the Scriptures teach us? And if we are to live a life for Him, then we do so as a witness to others. Calvin puts it this way, The reason why they ought to be luminaries, lights, in this dark world, is that they carry the word of life by which they are enlightened, that they may give light also to others. And of course Yeshua himself teaches us, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In other words, the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we respond in difficult situations, the way that we bear up under difficulties and continue to have a life of joy and rejoicing in the Lord, even in the midst of the sorrows that we uh, engage in in this fallen world. And others see us and know us in this way. Then we will be a light to them. They will be asking, what is it that you have? And what is it that we have? We have the very love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts through the work of Yeshua and His Spirit. The light that shines in us to a watching world is when our lives conform to the truth God has revealed to us contained as it is 
in the Word of God, the Scriptures. So once again, brothers and sisters, I know that you agree with me on this, but it's just an encouragement to you to make the Scriptures a significant daily part of your lives. Now, I know not everyone can spend hours and hours studying the Bible every day. Okay, we have work and we have other responsibilities. But we can read the Scriptures, memorize them, meditate upon them, and do so to some extent every day. He goes on to say, so that in the day of Messiah, he's going to say that he would not be uh, ashamed So that in the day of Messiah, what does Paul mean by the phrase, the day of Messiah? It is the day of Yeshua's return according to his promise, a day when ultimately and finally the deeds of mankind will be judged. Now, I'm not getting into parsing all of the the eschatology that can surround this phrase uh, in the day of Messiah. Does he come? Does he rule upon the earth? Uh, does he return again? Uh, all of these different possibilities. But I'm just lumping it all together because I think that's what Paul is doing here. In the day of Messiah, it's the day when he returns and shows himself in this world again, in a physical body, shows himself to be the one who gave his life, who died and rose on the third day and ascended on high and returns to bring the kingdom to its ultimate and final end. So, Paul speaks of this in his first epistle to the Corinthians, directing his words to those who are truly saved by God's grace, and who therefore are admonished to live out their faith in obedience to God. We read, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Yeshua Messiah. What does that mean? The foundation of our life is Yeshua. There's no other foundation that will work. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's works will become evident. For the day will show it because it is is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You see, when you put gold into a fire, it only refines it. When you put wood, hay, or stubble into fire, it burns it away. So there's coming a time when our deeds will be seen uh, either to be for the glory of God or not. Now, I fully believe that the scriptures teach that our sins have been removed from God as far as the east is from the west, and that he remembers them no more. We're not going to stand and hear a litany of all of the things that we've done wrong, but we may well be ashamed that so few things are pointed out as being uh, good and being for the greater uh, expanse of the kingdom. Paul himself lived with the expectation of Yeshua's return and that his service for Yeshua would be evaluated as to whether it was worthy, that is, gold, silver, or precious stones, or lacking, that is, wood, hay, or straw. Of course, the comparison makes clear that serving the Lord as he intends would bring about that which has eternal value, 
will, while failing to live and serve in a way that truly honors him, would result in producing that which is short-lived. He says, I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Here, Paul emphasizes his deep desire that he would serve Yeshua as he intends, as Yeshua intends, and not for self-glory and self-gain. He uses the metaphor of a race in which the runners seek to finish the course just as they had been trained to do. Do we see ourselves in a, uh, in a race? Not that we're trying to take the glory to ourselves, because it's not self-glory. As we're able to run the race, as we're able to complete the race, as we're able to do so in a good fashion, the glory goes to Him. It's much like a coach that has done well in coaching his team. Ultimately, it is the coach that should receive the applause when the team wins, because he is the one who has trained them. And he says, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Well, in our text, as well as in other Pauline texts, his reference to being able to glory, and this is the King James Version says to um, um, to boast, and some of the other versions do, but the word and its context can clearly mean to give glory. It does not mean that he is seeking to take credit or glory unto himself. For Paul repeatedly makes it known that whatever success came from his labors in the gospel, the glory belongs to Yeshua. For instance, in Romans 15, 18-19, we read, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Messiah has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum uh, I have fully preached the gospel of Messiah. So he doesn't want to take the 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 applause. He wants it to go to Yeshua. We read again in 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. The kind of boasting or reason for glory to which Paul refers is that which causes others to give all praise and glory to Yeshua. Indeed, he teaches us that no one has a place to boast or take self-glory before the Lord. We read again, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man, no person may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Messiah Yeshua, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It is clear then, 
that in our text, Paul is not exhorting the Philippian believers to maintain and grow in their faith in Yeshua in order that he might take the credit. Rather, he's encouraging them to persevere in their faith, because in doing so they would give to God the glory he alone deserves. Indeed, the only boasting that Paul teaches to be righteous is boasting in the Lord, that is, giving him all the glory. It doesn't mean, of course, that we can't tell each other that we appreciate them, or we can't explain to someone who's teaching that you appreciate his or her teaching. No, that's fine. That's the way it should be. But ultimately, it comes upon the teacher himself or herself not to put themselves in the center of attention at all times as though everything that is happening that is good is the result of their work. I can't point fingers at all, but I can certainly say that there's plenty of of uh, examples of those who have very, very large quote-unquote ministries. They have hundreds of thousands of people that are uh, attending their, their services and so forth and so on. And they have these the largest groups you can imagine and the buildings and all of the things that they've done. And uh, they're everywhere on the Internet and so forth and so on. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean they're prideful, but there are some that are. And the ways that you can tell this is that everything that relates to the ministry is ends up being pointed to one person. Well, Paul says no. That one person ought to be Yeshua. And we ought to, while we give thanks for each other and for the good things that people have done, uh, I can give witness to that. Uh, as I have mentioned before, just uh, several months ago, one of my professors that I had at seminary, who probably uh, I give credit for molding a great deal of my life during those years where I sat under his teaching, he passed away. And uh, I've been privileged to receive some of the books out of his library. And I take that as a great privilege. I don't put uh, Dr. Patterson up as some kind of uh, person that receives all of the claim and all of the glory, or acclaim and glory. No, of course not. He, too, was a humble person doing his best to teach others, and he did very well at it. And I'm grateful for that, and I'm grateful to be able to honor him in that. But... Dr. Patterson would have been the first to say that his purpose was to point everyone to Yeshua. And that ought to be the case with all of us, whether it's in the context of home or whether it's in the context of work or whether it's in the context of uh, uh, wherever, wherever we excel. When we do excel in any way, we ought to give the glory to God. I'm glad, I say here it is good that the New American Standard Bible has chosen the verb to glory in our verse as the proper contextually correct translation of the Greek word kauksaomai. For though this word can carry the sense to boast, in our modern English, boasting generally carries the sense of claiming for oneself that which others should applaud. Now, I recognize that uh, in the ancient world the term was used in the sense of boasting, of, of making an, uh, a public proclamation of, your, of how much you appreciate that person or how good that uh, person has done and so forth. I recognize that, but in our modern English, to boast is usually is considered to be someone patting his own back. Well, that's why I think the uh, NESB was right 
to uh, choose the verb to glory. So, a sense of claiming for oneself that which others should applaud. This, of course, is not what Paul is stating in our text, that as the Philippian believers persevere in their faith in Yeshua, that somehow Paul would receive some of the credit. Clearly not. Paul is very clear that all glory must go to God and to his Messiah Yeshua for the salvation of lost sinners. Apart from God's work, none of us would have come to him in faith. He is the one who has chosen us for himself and brought about everything necessary to bring us to himself. And the very fact that we are enabled to do that is the result of Yeshua's work. For apart from his coming, in his incarnation, apart from his death, his his burial, resurrection, ascension, and his current intercession for us, we would be lost. It's all of his grace and mercy. What Paul does state is that he desires that his labors in the gospel and deep desire to help form strong communities of faith in Philippi will not fail. That through the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, the believers in Philippi will stand in the day of Yeshua as trophies of God's grace and the power of the gospel centered in the work of Yeshua, which Paul was privileged to bring to them as one sent forth by Yeshua himself. I want to emphasize that. Do we realize how powerful the gospel is? It's the power of God in the gospel. We don't have to fear anything to give the gospel. Oh, somebody might laugh at us and say, oh, you're one of those uh, over-the-edge kind of Christian people or something to that effect. So what? The gospel is the power of God that results in salvation. So let's give it. Let's live it that God might receive the glory. We may note this perspective of Paul clearly set forth in his first epistle to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19-20 For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Yeshua at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Well, how are they Paul's glory and joy. Surely the basis for Paul's desire and goal to give all glory to Yeshua is the sovereignty of God in bringing the sinners to faith in Yeshua as he writes in his epistle to the Ephesians. He recognizes that apart from God's initial work and ongoing work, no one's going to come to Yeshua. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Messiah just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons, through Yeshua Messiah to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. We didn't earn it. It was something that God determined before the world began. Doesn't that just amaze you? I mean, it's beyond our ability to fully grasp. That before the world ever was created, the universe, God intended to bring unto himself a group of people that no one could number, from every people group, from every language group, and so forth. 
that we would be with him forever. And in order to do that, he paid the ultimate price. Yeshua, hanging on the cross, the innocent, infinitely innocent and righteous one, paying for the sins of all his people. That in itself ought to motivate us in whatever possible ways to open the conversation with others about what it means to be forgiven of our sins and to be saved by God's grace. Just start the conversation. It could be with somebody you've never met or it could be an ongoing conversation with those that you regularly know and and are with. Regardless, God has promised that the gospel is powerful and that it's his instrument to bring people of his choosing to himself. This clear posture of Paul in regard to his ministry for Yeshua ought to be the pattern for all who labor in the kingdom of God. That's all of us. (laughs) Those whose duty and privilege it is to teach and shepherd those within the believing community ought to have this as our highest goal and purpose, to give all honor and glory to the one who alone is able to grant the gift of faith and bring lost sinners unto himself, securing their eternal life with him. That he deems to use us as his servants in the glorious work of redemption is itself indeed our reward. This is clearly what Paul means when he openly desires that he has not run in vain nor toiled in vain. His hope and life purpose is that Yeshua would receive unmeasured glory and praise from those among whom Paul has labored. And so we're just going to begin uh, verse 17. Uh, He says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. The language Paul uses here is based upon the drink offering, as noted in the Torah, in which there was a libation, or uh, the fruit of the vine was being poured out beside the altar upon which sacrifices were done. As a sign of joy and thanksgiving, that is, as praise to God for his acceptance of the sacrifice and its meaning. In other words, here's a, a, a glass of wine that would be something one would want to uh, drink himself or herself as just a, a part of the festivities of the, of the rejoicing. But instead, what happens? It's poured out beside the altar. That which is the sign of joy and happiness in that God is receiving our sacrifice is poured out to him. We don't take the glory for it. That's what Paul's meaning here. He is the part that is poured out beside the altar, not that which is put upon the altar, that was Yeshua. So the very joy of knowing Yeshua and of having Yeshua as our Savior is poured out as an offering back to Him that He would receive all of the glory. So the fact that Paul uses the present tense here in this Greek word, spendomai, being poured out may indicate that he has prepared himself for the last days of his life and is therefore anticipating that his labors on behalf of the Philippians as well as others are coming to a close. In other words, is he saying, I'm giving my life up 
for this work. Well, that's possible. Or it may be that we should understand his words here simply to reflect his willingness to undergo persecution or whatever for the sake of the gospel and his ability to have been a tool in God's hands to bring the truth regarding Yeshua to the Philippian community which he addresses here. In other words, instead of drawing to himself what he has done, he's saying, I'm giving God the glory that he has been willing to use me and even enable me and equip me to be his servant and to bring the wonderful, wonderful news of the gospel in Yeshua to these people. Do we look at our service for the Lord that way? We should. If we have to be recognized, if we, if people have to see us serving, well, there's nothing wrong with people seeing us serving. We don't have to be in secret. But if our goal is that others will see what a good job we're doing, if others will say, wow, look at this person. They're really on fire for the Lord. If we have others' eyes in mind, we're missing the point. And that's what Paul means when he says he pours himself out as a thank offering. All that he has done, and even that which he has endured, and the pain that has been caused to him by being a light of the gospel, and being put in prison by the, by the Roman government, and so forth and so on. He said, all of that is to give glory and praise to God, not to put myself on a pedestal. So he is pouring it out upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Here it appears that Paul pictures the believing community in Philippi as priests who are offering up sacrifices of praise. That's what they were doing because they had come to faith in the Messiah. And that Paul is rejoicing in adding the drink offering of his joy and rejoicing in regard not only to the final day of salvation, which they will experience, but also the joy of their current willingness to live out their faith as those redeemed by Yeshua's sacrificial death, resurrection, and intercession for them. Thus, their response to God in faith produced the sacrifice of the gift to Paul. See, it's his saying, the Lord allowed me to bring you the gospel, and now you are a sacrifice unto God, and all I am is yet just a thank offering alongside. Someone has said, the use of this terminology reveals Paul's humility about his own importance. In the ritual, the sacrifice was primary, the drink offering was secondary. If Paul placed himself in the position of the drink offering, he saw their gift as the primary matter and his own circumstances as secondary. Isn't this a very important and encouraging uh, admonition of Paul to us? In each place where we, where we serve, everyone has something to do within the body of Messiah. He has equipped us he has gifted us to work together for the glory of Yeshua, for the bringing in of those who would come to faith. We are privileged to be His workers. And when the work of our hands brings about, about good, godly results, we are to praise Him, not to draw attention to ourselves as though it was our work that did it all. No. 
It is God who works both the will and to do of his good pleasure. Well, that's where we will uh, end for this evening. And I hope that this has been an encouragement to you. And I pray uh, with you and with all of us as we in our local communities seek to honor the Lord and to give Yeshua the glory and praise that he deserves. So, Lord willing, we'll see you next week as we continue our study in this epistle to the Philippians.